Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Good morning, Candace. Good morning. I'm trying to speak with a, a little something extra in my voice, a, a note of enthusiasm and excitement because the topic of today is happiness. And, you know, it really sort of brings you down if you hear two hosts talking about happiness and they sound like they would rather slit their wrists than be talking into a microphone. So. We'll do our best to be <laughs> we'll joyful. We'll do our best, everyone. Um, exclamation points everywhere. Since the recession, I've noticed that all manner of publications and advertisements have been pushing a different type of fulfillment. You know, before it was things, if you have this bracelet, if you have this car, if you have this television, you know, it'll make you happier because it it adds a new type of enrichment to your daily life. But now I read and I see things about experiences as a way to fulfillment. And it seems like no matter if you're pushing a, a thing, a tangible thing or an experience, they're still marketing happiness. Can you really do that? And what really is happiness? And it seems like it might be appropriate to turn back to some of the oldest conceptions of what happiness really is. So we shall travel back to ancient Greece. <sighs> and we're going to hang out with Herodotus, um, who, of course, wrote the history, which is one of the classics of classics, if I can say that. And he tells the story of Croesus and Solon. Croesus was the richest man pretty much on earth. He was the king of Lydia. He was their Donald Trump. And Solon was an Athenian lawgiver and general wise man. And Croesus said to Solon very confidently that he thought he was the happiest man in the world. And Solon basically called him an idiot and said the happiest man in the world was a guy named Tellus who had been killed in battle at the prime of life. And the second happiest people were two brothers, Cleobus and Biton, who had carried their mother to a festival, yoked up to this cart like oxen, and then died. So basically, the three happiest people in the world were all dead. dead. (laughs) (laughs) Which isn't really what you think of when you think of happiness so much. Um, But his point was that you can only figure out if you're happy when you're dead, because the possibility of chance and luck and fortune, that's ended at that point. And otherwise, you never know what's going to happen. The Greek idea of happiness was very dependent, I think, on the idea of chance. And we should mention, while neither of us has a degree in philosophy, but has done uh, a marked amount of research, that the closest word for happiness in Greek seems to be eudaimonia, which, etymologically speaking at least, means living in a way that's favored by the gods, you meaning well, and daimon meaning a spirit. So living well would be living happily or living in a way that's pleasing to the gods. But happiness in a way that we conceive of it, which could be ice cream cones and sunny days or, you know, a rainy day in a book and a nice lamp, depending on what type of personality you have, wasn't, wasn't the way the Greeks thought about it. It was um, more or less a, a series of experiences and, of course, that would vary depending on the philosopher you're looking at. And Katie's mentioned Herodotus, and I think that's an excellent place to start. And at the risk of sounding like we're, we're ticking off a list of different Greek philosophers, we are, because we want to give you all a, a broader take of the Greek definition of happiness. And someone I find particularly interesting is Socrates. And Socrates was all about the soul and virtue, 
the Greek word for virtue is actually arete, which means something more along the lines of excellence. And Socrates' question was, what makes an excellent person or what makes an excellent life? And it wasn't sensual pleasure. It wasn't money. It wasn't family. So sorry, family. Um, but he did have the idea that you can't achieve happiness, which was pretty revolutionary. This is something that you can get, you personally. And to get to that, what you have to do is put your soul to rights. He basically believed that your soul could rot and die, or it could flourish, and you could live this good, flourishing life. And the worst thing that could happen to you is to be a wicked person. So you wicked people can't be happy. So just playing devil's advocate here, what if you're born with a wicked heart? I mean, I guess some people would argue that some people are born with kinder dispositions, and some people have more inherent nasty spirits. And I think Aristotle had something to say about what you're born with and making the most of it in terms of happiness. Aristotle had a bit of a grimmer view of happiness. Um, He thought it was really important to be of good birth and to have lots of friends and good friends and money and children and a healthy old age and on and on. I presume he had all of these things himself. Well, the problem is that if you don't have these things, you can't be happy But you can't exactly choose what you're born into, so that doesn't leave a lot of room for some of us. And in fact, he didn't believe that women had reason, and reason, of course, was the way to get to happiness. So, Candace, you and I are excluded from this whole happy thing. Apparently so, but I tend to be a a pretty active person. I like to do things, exclamation point. And that's a philosophy that Aristotle favored. He didn't think that attaining happiness happened by living passively. You had to be active. You had to actively be conceiving of ways to reach well-being. The thing about Aristotle was that he believed that happiness was man's highest purpose, that we actually have an end point, the teleological argument. And that separates us from animals and plants. Well, because we can think with reason. And he thought reason was the one thing that separated us. So if you acted with reason, you could find your way to the highest good, which was eudaimonia, happiness. But, you know, of course, us women couldn't get there. And the thing that really gets a little bit depressing sorry, happiness podcast, (laughs) was that he thought the best kind of happiness was a godlike happiness, which he also says is pretty much impossible. Unless you're born into that state, right? Not even. You have to have all of those prerequisites, the good birth, the good family, and all the friends and the money and everything. And then out of those select few, because that narrows it down a lot, a couple of you, you know, might attain that whole godlike happiness thing, but the rest of us are kind of screwed. But I suppose if you're on the the screwed end of the spectrum and you don't have a good family and you're not attractive and you're childless, which are all things he pointed out as being key to that state of contentment. You could say that instead of being bitter and cursing the state you're in, you could always strive toward happiness. You could, you could take the point of view, well, maybe I don't have all these facets that are necessary, but I could still actively pursue some sort of contentment and well-being Well, and that might bring us to some of the later philosophies. I know you'd been talking earlier about Epicureanism. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And if I had to pick a Greek philosophy of happiness, I think I'd go with Epicureanism, sort of the, the least of all evils, because I have to say that if one expects to live by some sort of Greek philosophy in the modern age, you're hopelessly anachronistic, and I don't think it's possible. And if you do, please email me immediately, because I want to know how you're doing it. Um, Epicurus advocated detaching oneself 
from philosophy, essentially being a type of hermit. He did say, however, you can surround yourself with like-minded folks, say, in a commune, which is where he lived. And his big philosophy was attaining pleasure by avoiding pain. So, you know, it takes two objects to cause friction, two different surfaces rubbing against each other is going to cause a spark, cause some sort of disturbance. And he said, just avoid it. No friction. It's okay. You'll be happier if you just avoid that altogether. And he was a hedonist. And today we may think of a hedonist as someone who drinks too much and parties too much and eats too much. But his definition or the definition that he abided by was a little bit different. Um, Merriam-Webster just defines it as the doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the sole or chief good in life. And we're not talking a Dionysian sort of hedonism. He was... Epicurus advocated a sort of ascetic lifestyle, like Candace was saying, you know, living in a, living kind of as a hermit. And even though he wasn't ascetic, he didn't believe in deprivation necessarily. He believed in moderation and simplicity. And just for argument's sake, I think that there's a whole industry today built on the idea of simplicity. You could confine yourself to a diet of bread and peanut butter, but if you go to a gourmet grocer and buy a $14 jar of almond butter and a $10 loaf of fancy bread, you're not exactly being an Epicurean. Well, and I think the bottom line for Epicureanism was that if you don't want a lot of things, you can satisfy those few things that you have. Like the worst thing that could happen is to have a bunch of unfulfilled longings. And if you get rid of those desires by saying you only want, say, three things instead of 300 things... Mm -hmm you up your chances of actually being able to accomplish that. And he also put mind over body in terms of happiness, the idea of an intellectual pleasure versus some sort of carnal or corporeal pleasure. And this is something that John Stuart Mill picked up on later when he talked about the carnal pleasures of food and drink and sex. And Epicurus actually advocated abstaining from sex as well as abstaining from marriage. So, well, there you go. But <laughs> the exact opposite of hedonism as we would think of it today. <laughs> really, but he would have argued that no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter how painful it is, as long as you can put your mind over that situation, you can find pleasure. Mind over body. Aren't there all sorts of magicians today who talk about putting mind over one's body? Are you saying Epicurus is like David Copperfield? <laughs> I don't know about that. It's an interesting proposition. I think one of the more striking things about Epicureanism was that Epicurus believed that there are gods who exist, but they're not even concerned with us They don't at care all. about you. They really don't. They they're have godlike things to, to do. Exactly, godlike <laughs> things. And he was implying, basically, that you can make your own destiny, because the, the gods don't care. You're here, you're in motion, now do what you will. Well, and if there is no divine order... The only things you have to depend on to figure out what's good and what's bad are your senses. And obviously, pleasure is good. When you things are pleasurable, you feel good. And when you're in pain or you're anxious, you feel terrible. And Stoicism is actually supposed to be the opposite of Epicureanism. They believed, Stoics believed, that the universe was rational, harmonious whole. And since human beings are also rational, we should be able to find our place by living in a virtuous way, by living an excellent life. And it's funny because Stoicism is supposed to be the total opposite of Epicureanism, but they do have a lot of things in common. They believe that you should be happy regardless of the external factors of what was going on. So you can't control the things that happen to you. Unlike Aristotle, you know, you can't control 
how you're born and what you're born into, and you can't control disease and famine and war, but you should be able to find your happiness regardless of what's going on. You should be stoic in the way that we use it today. And for the sake of argument and presenting another side of the happiness story, we're going to travel much further into the future, uh, not the present day, but back during the Romantic period. And this has little to nothing to do with the, the Greek philosophers, but it presents a very interesting contrast to their ideas of attaining happiness. And there's a book that came out not too long ago by Eric Wilson called Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy. And Wilson is a, a noted professor of romanticism at Wake Forest University. And he abides by the philosophy of melancholia. And essentially what he explains in his words is that melancholy is an essential part of being a human being. And he defines it as a very active state. When we're melancholy, we feel uneasy in relation to the way things are, the status quo, the conventions of our society. We yearn for a deeper, richer relationship to the world. And he goes on, but I'm going to trail off there. And what struck me about this definition of melancholy and how it's a necessary contrast to living happily and obliviously, some might say, is that it's so different from this idea of Epicurean detachment. It's sort of like being immersed in a world that you don't understand. You may be unlucky in it. You may not have a, a strong foothold in it, but that's a good thing. That's an excellent thing because it makes you almost hyper aware of your surroundings and, and your place in the world. And unlike the Stoics who would say, take your lot and live with it, he's essentially saying, yeah, take your lot, but look how much you can do with it because out of this state of awareness and dissatisfaction comes great art, great poetry, which, of course, the Greeks had in spades when you look back at all sorts of Greek art and architecture and literature. What they also had and what we enjoy so much today is the idea of democracy. And I was reading a really good book called Happiness, a History by Darren McMahon, and he was positing that perhaps the idea of democracy led to all these questionings of what happiness is and how you achieve it because people had a choice. They had a choice to elect who they wanted, a choice to participate at least in the process. And maybe you can also participate in the process of achieving your own happiness. And at the risk of sounding like a kindergarten teacher, we have that choice too. Every day when you wake up, you choose whether or not you're going to have the, the quote unquote right attitude. But happiness is, you know, it's more than just the the smile you put on for the rest of the world. It is really, no matter what philosophy you live your life by, it's it's how you find enjoyment and fulfillment. And if you look at happiness like a line graph, it's different for everyone. For some people who live contentedly and happily, it's probably just a straight line. For other people who depend on experiences or themes to make their day, you probably see a line that goes up very sharply with a peak of happiness and then plummets with the trough of unhappiness and then up and down and up and down. And whether you prefer that type of line graph for your happiness cycle or a straight line, again, your choice. I feel like I should start singing more than a feeling. Oh, that's a great song. Um, and Katie actually is about to, but we're going to spare all of your ears. So we'll go ahead and let all of you go. But if you have any ideas, and for heaven's sake, if you are a real philosopher and you want to weigh in on any of this, 
email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or comment on the blog. And for more about the ancient Greeks and ancient civilization, be sure to visit the website at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. 